A reading from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15 to 33. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that he should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh and of his bones, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is God's word. So today I want to talk to you about the spirit-filled home. I can't think of anything more important to share on a Sunday morning. It's God's desire that our hearts be spirit-filled. And I want you to put two ideas together. Verse 18 said, we should no longer be drunk with wine. In that culture, in our culture, uh, that was our former life. We, you know, we're not drunk with wine now. We are intoxicated with the spirit of God. If you're a Christian, the spirit of God has taken up residence. You are spirit-filled And verse 22 talks about the home. It talks about husbands and wives and children. So the outworking of a spirit-filled life is a spirit-filled home. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. And I want you to think about the word home. I was thinking all week, is there any other word in our English language that has more emotion, more feeling, more imagery, more memories than home? Probably when I say home, you might be thinking about the home you were raised in, the home you're building now. You might be thinking of the physical dwelling, your backyard. There's just, there's just hundreds and hundreds of emotions to this word home. Home is where we celebrate holidays and birthdays. We cry together, we pray together, we laugh together. We're silly together. Hopefully everything that happens in a home stays in a home. And when we have the difficulties of life or when we get sick, where do we want to go? We all want to go home, right? And in some ways, spiritually, we're longing for home. That's a song we just sang, right? We know as Christians, the whole world is groaning in anticipation of the future glory, the place Jesus has prepared for us. So I want to talk about the spirit-filled home, and I want to add a disclaimer as we start, because I know in a crowd this size and with three services, some of you have wonderful memories of the home you were raised in. You love your experience. You wouldn't trade it for anything. 
And then others had very bad experiences. There were things that happened that you're not fond of, you like to forget. You know, I come from the latter. I saw things that as a, as a child no child should have ever seen. I saw them in an age no child should have ever seen. And here's what's incredible. Even as a non-Christian, I was never bitter at my parents. First of all, it's all I knew. So the Brady Bunch came on, and then I said, you know, there's something different going on here. I did a genogram years ago where you trace back your grandparents, your uncles, all these people. It's not Ancestry.com to find out where you came from in Europe or somewhere in some other continent. The idea is to go back and look and say, you know what? You know, my parents had their struggles, but, but their parents, some, you know, my stepfather was never told he was loved by his mom or dad. He never had a winter coat. He never had a toothbrush. And you start to understand that these are family of origin problems that go way back, that bad choices go way back. And again, these people were doing the best they could with what they had. When I became a Christian, I realized that everything could be new, that God had another way. And one of the foundational things for me has always been the story of Nicodemus, because like you, when I became a Christian, I had never read the Bible, and the person that led me to Christ said, read John. So I started in John, and when I got to John 3, there's a scene with Nicodemus, and Nicodemus is the only guy in all Scripture where Jesus said, you must be born again. Now, it's so ironic, because years later, I would hear all these testimonies of people that became born again, and on TV, it's always the axe murderer, the drug addict, you know, the terribly vicious person who's now born again, right? And yet Nicodemus was an upstanding religious figure in Israel. He's part of the Sanhedrin, part of the 70 who ruled Israel. Jesus said he was the teacher in Israel. And yet you have to be born again. I was in the Jewish quarter of Jerusalem last week. We had a free day. And there's a guy who owns a store. His name is Moshi. And uh, he sells jewelry and such there, but he's an Orthodox Jew who's read the New Testament. He knows all our views of prophecy, uh, and yet he's still an Orthodox Jew. And I wanted to talk to him about Daniel. I'm preaching through Daniel, and we had a wonderful time. He knew Chuck Smith and a lot of the Calvary guys. And he said, you know, you're the only Calvary guy I know that wasn't a former drug addict. He said, you're also the only Calvary guy I know who doesn't have a beard. They all have beards today. I'm saying everybody has beards in America today. It's just the way it's going. So, you know... You have to be born again. What Jesus was telling Nicodemus is, you don't get rehabilitated. You don't get reprogrammed. There's no healing in the memories. You have to be born anew. You have to be born fresh. And when I read that, I really, I really came to the realization that grace changes everything. That if God's grace could save us, then he, can, then he can use that grace to build a new and different way. And I vowed that if God ever gave me a chance to have a family, I'd do it a different way. And 35 years later, I still only have two loves in life, my family and this church. Both are spirit-filled. I love them both. And God is bearing tremendous fruit. And I know deep in my heart, it's not because of who I am. God wants to do this for all of us. And your family's going to look different from my family. You know, one time we were out to dinner and I was watching this couple. They had two kids, very mannerly, very quiet. And I looked at my wife and I said, how come our kids aren't like that? How come they're not quiet and mannerly? And she looked at me and she said, because we're not. We're loud, we're not mannerly, and that's the way it is. So everybody's different, and that's all outward stuff. But God's desire is a spirit-filled home. And here's what Paul does for three chapters. He tells us who we are in Christ. Chapter 1, verse 7, he says we're redeemed and forgiven. Verse 13, we're sealed with the Spirit. Chapter 2, verse 5, he said you're alive. Some of you didn't look alive in worship, but I'll take it by faith that you are. 
Ephesians 3.12, you have access to God. Ephesians 3.16, you're partakers of the wonderful promise. But Paul doesn't leave us there. He said, okay, we've got to take all this theology of who you are, and now there's an outworking of this. And he said, your conduct must now uh, match your talk. And so he begins, he said, you, know, you, know, you have to walk worthy of this calling, oxios in the Greek. The balancing of the scales, your walk and your talk need to match. And then he tells us that we walk in love. Obviously, that's the supreme desire of us all. We walk in light. We bring everything into the light. There's no hiding. We walk in wisdom. We walk not as the Gentiles walk. Paul said, when I was a child, I did childish things. When I became an adult, I put them away. Paul said, now the walk that we walk is according to righteousness and holiness. And in many ways, the outworking of our faith, of being filled and refilled with the Spirit, begins in the home. And my pastor used to say this, and I'm still going with it. I don't know if it's theologically sound, but he said it takes more Holy Spirit to do the dishes than it does to speak in tongues. And there's a lot of truth in that. And a lot of people are chasing signs and wonders, and we want to be filled with the Spirit. That's all wonderful. I believe in the gifts of the Spirit. But the home is where the Spirit does its greatest work. God wants your home to be Spirit-filled. How do we build a Spirit-filled home? Well, the Bible's not a how-to manual. It's not a book of lists. It's very relational. The psalmist said, unless the Lord builds the house, they who are laboring are building in vain. That's the Gentile world around us. That's the pagans. You know, it's all about material wealth. It's all about where you're sending the kids to college, the big home, right? It's, you know, the house is being built on a very faulty foundation. God has given us a blueprint. Very early in Scripture, he's given us his spirit. He's given us a new and a better way. And God said the foundation, right here is in verse 31, a man will leave his mother and father and be joined to his wife. They will become one flesh. That scripture is used four times in the Bible, Genesis 2.28, Matthew, Mark, and here in Ephesians, and Paul says, I'll tell you a great mystery. It speaks of Christ in the church. So when you open your Bible, God doesn't begin with a sacrifice. He doesn't begin with Ten Commandments. He doesn't begin with the Levitical law. He doesn't begin with a house of worship or a civil government. God said, if you want to build a world, you start with two people who have children. If you could build a family, you could build a community. You build a community, you could build a church. You build a church, you could build a nation. You build a nation, you could build a world. God said, this is the blueprint. This is how you start. Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook gave Newark schools $100 million. Five years later, there's not one noticeable metric that those schools are any better. Do you know why? Because the, it starts in the home. This is the blueprint. And right here in verse 31, you have a definition of marriage. One man for one woman having children. Now, when we talk about marriage in the church, this isn't cable TV. When we talk about marriage in the church, this is a home game for us. Because outside of the Bible, there is no evidence for two people being joined together. Polygamy, harems, cohabitation, uh, all the other systems are outside the Bible. And I've shared this in, in some of my writings and preaching, the genius of marriage is that God designed a system, listen, where everybody wins. The man wins, the woman wins, the children win. Now, not everybody gets what they want, but everybody wins. In the first pages of Genesis, God said, this is the blueprint, and he carries it all the way through the Bible. Every Christian home should be spirit-filled. Every Christian home should be a filling station. 
It's where every member comes home and is valued and gets refueled for the next day. Every home should be a seminary where we learn about God, a hospital, a business, a church. It's not our job here to raise your children. It's our job to second what you're doing in the home. God has given that to, uh, instruction to parents. So what does a spirit-filled home look like? Let's go to the flip chart. And we have for you a home. Now, I was going to draw this on the spot, but I talked to a board member and I said, what do you think about my drawing on Sunday mornings? And the person said, well, let's put it this way. If we ever play Pictionary, I'm not choosing you as a partner. So I am now scarred for life, so I had somebody else draw this. But in a spirit-filled home, everybody, according to the Bible, has value. Now, this is important, very important, because we're going to get to function and roles later. And when we get to function and roles later, you first you need to understand everybody has value. We're all made in God's image. God loves us all. And um, I want to give you a, a great apologetic for the Bible. You know I love the Bible, and I'm always trying to prove to you it's a message system that came from God. One of the great apologetics for the Bible is that it's neither Eastern nor Western. 60 books written by 40 authors over thousands of years, the book of Revelation written in about 70 AD, 1900 and some years ago, uh, in a predominantly Eastern context is neither Eastern nor Western. What do I mean by that? Well, there's a lot of imagery like marriages and hospitality that are very Eastern, yet we can still understand them, agrarian type of illustrations. And the Bible's also very Western. Jesus would tell parables about the workers who came at 9 o'clock, 12 o'clock, 3 o'clock, and there was the right of the owner to pay them that wage. Every man sitting under a vine and a fig tree talks about capitalism. Uh, The ability to create wealth is a very Western idea. And so one of the things we're seeing here in this chapter and the way this plays out is you and I read here about marriage, and it makes total sense. In fact, you don't even have to be a Christian. You read this and say, yeah, I get it. Husband loves their wives, wives submit to their husbands, children obey, because marriage for you and me has been normative for the better part of the whole history of America and Western civilization. But do you realize when Paul penned these words, they were countercultural? Rome ruled the world, and this was a strange concept to anyone who lived in Rome. Uh, Mary Bird has just written a book called SPQR, Senate and People of Rome, I've read three biographies of Rome. This is by far the best. Listen to what she said about marriage in Rome. She said, Rome and marriage was, in essence, a simple and private business. Unlike in our modern world, the state played little part in it. And in most cases, a man and a woman were married if they said they were, and they weren't married if they said they weren't. That plus a party or two to celebrate the union was probably all there was for the majority of ordinary Roman citizens. She goes on to say, if you were wealthier, Uh, You would have a bigger celebration with songs and the wedding dress and so forth. She said the main purpose of marriage in Rome, as well as in past cultures, was the production of legitimate children, in other words, procreation, who automatically inherited Roman citizenship if both parents were citizens or if they satisfied various conditions governing intermarriage. It was also to keep money within families. Uh, That's what lies at the heart of the story of the Sabian women, which depicts the first marriage in the new city as a process of legitimate rape for the purpose of procreation. The same message was paraded repeatedly on the tombstones of wives and mothers throughout all of Roman history. And yet, tucked in the Hebrew scriptures was a far different idea. 
And the different idea comes right out of Genesis. And then we see it through the rest of the books of the Bible. Now, Paul said, as new creations, we are to walk in wisdom. What is the one book in the Bible you think of when I say wisdom? Proverbs, right? Does Proverbs have anything to say about marriage? Yes, it has something critical to say. Proverbs 2.16 says, Wisdom will deliver you from the immoral woman, from the seductress who flatters with her words. Get this. She forsakes the companion of her youth, and she forgets the covenant of her God. Uh, We see the same thing repeated in Malachi chapter 2. Marriage in a Hebrew context, now a Christian context, is a covenant of companionship. What is a covenant? It is a contract, a binding agreement. So when you got married, you entered into a, a binding agreement, a covenant of companionship. Now, people ask me this question all the time. Pastor Bob, where does a marriage begin? Teens ask me all the time. Uh, does a marriage begin when we say we're in love and we say when we have sex? You know, where does a marriage begin? And I tell them a marriage begins with a vow, a promise. Now, I know June's coming and there's going to be a lot of weddings and ladies are getting ready for weddings. But when I marry people, I say, look, here's a skeleton of what we can or should do. But let me tell you something. There's only one non-negotiable, and that's the vow. That's really what the wedding is. Everything else is window dressing. The dress, the candles, the transportation, the dinner, you know, everything somebody else is paying for is all window dressing. And of course, they don't like to hear it, right? How much easier would it be if two people in plain clothes said their vows and we got on with the reception, right? Be cheaper for dads, uh, whoever's paying, uh, and, and it would be fairer to the groom, right? You know, the girl gets this $5,000 dress, she looks so beautiful, we take all the pictures, and the guy stands there, get this, in a rented tux. He doesn't even buy the tux. Spending $20,000, he's in a rented tux. There's no such thing as groom magazine. I mean, he's relegated to like a second position in the whole thing. Would also make my life easier as I conduct weddings. Um, someone would ask me, what's one of the pitfalls of ministry? I said, the mob. And they're like, the mob? Oh, yeah, you live in Philly. The mob bothers you guys? I'm like, no, when I do weddings. The person who wants to control everything. The mob, the mother of the bride. (laughs) Marriage begins with a vow, begins with a promise. And it's not a promise of present love. We know you love each other. You're wearing matching clothes. You're holding each other's hands. You're opening carters. We know you're in love. The promise of future love. And it's not a promise that I'll love you as long as you're attractive, as long as you're beautiful, as long as you can produce an income. You know what the words are, for better or worse, in sickness and health. It's one of the great ingenious things of God that in a fallen world where anything can happen in any day to each and every one of us, that someone will always be there for me. I don't understand my wife. I don't understand everything that makes her tick. But she knows and I know that we'll always be there. That's what matters. And so Proverbs tells us that there's this wonderful thing called marriage. It's a covenant of companionship. And when we think of companionship, we think of friends. Your wife should be your best friend. The Bible says friends stick closer than a brother. Why? Because you didn't choose your siblings, but you choose your friends. You've chosen your wife. C.S. Lewis said this about friendship. He said, that's why those pathetic people who simply want friends can never make them. 
The very condition for having friends is that you want something else besides the friend. If someone asks you, do you see the same truth as me? And the honest answer is, I don't care about that. I just want to be your friend. Lewis said, no friendship can arise. There would be nothing in the friendship to be built upon. Those who were going nowhere can have no fellow travelers. Friendship, Lewis said, is about passion and shared interest, bringing out the goodwill in others. That's what a marriage is. My wife wrote me a card when we were dating, and it was, she drew a picture of a mountain, and she was on a mountain, and I was on a mountain. We both had dreams and visions, and she said together we could go on the same journey. That's what a marriage is. And I know you need to be prudent, right? Some guys say, okay, I want to get a house, I want to get a good job. You know, I think marriage is, why don't we just go on the journey together? When our kids came along, they came along into our journey. They didn't become the journey. Everybody hear that one? When we got married, they became part of our journey. They weren't the journey, because if they're the journey, when they leave, what are you going to have? Somebody needs to hear that. Marriage is something where I wake up every day wanting to see my wife's gifts and talents come out of her, and she wants to see it come out of me, and we go on this mutual journey together. Now, that's only part of the equation. God adds something more radical. Proverbs 5.19 says, Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth. As a loving deer and as a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times. And always be enraptured. That's a Hebrew word that's used for intoxication. Always be intoxicated with her love. Unlike any other relationship, this friend becomes a lover, a sexual partner. And when you combine the intimacy of friendship and the intimacy of sexuality, you get this combustion. And now you understand why Jesus said what God has put together, let no man pull asunder. It is an ingenious institution that came out of the mind of God. And the Romans knew nothing about this. Again, the Romans, this was just to produce illegitimate children. They actually got their pleasure elsewhere at baths and with concubines, at, at temples and such. So everyone has value. You know, look at verse 22. Wives have value. They have a husband to leave them and to cherish them. Husbands have value in that there's a wife that honors them. Children have value in that they're raised in the fear and in the admonition of the Lord. Everybody has value in God's plan for the spirit-filled home. So if intimacy and oneness is God's goal, then Satan's device is to pull us apart and bring us to isolation. So everybody married in the room God's plan is to put you together. Satan wants to pull you apart. And I want to say this to young couples, because sometimes they overlook this. If oneness is what God wants to do, and if Satan wants to divide you, uh, he doesn't divide you by one day making you commit adultery or divorce or abandon your spouse. It doesn't start with big exits. It starts with little exits. Little teeny weeny ones, like sleeping on the couch or denying sex. We're getting in a disagreement and never talking it out. There are inevitable trials that come. I tell young couples there are, there are things you have to figure out early, you know, beyond the toothpaste deal, you know, like in-laws. How are we going to deal with in-laws? You know, there, there's go, we were raised by two sets of parents, and we need to communicate to work these things out. If we make them disagreements, there are going to be little exits, and a lot of little exits lead to big exits. So God's plan is for oneness. The Bible says you shouldn't let your son go down on your anger. So, so we all have value, but we all have a different function. 
Now, I'm going to let some of you down today because you're American and you're the Marlboro man and you call your own shots. But can I tell you the kingdom of God is not a democracy? Sorry to let you down. Uh, God kind of set up his rules for marriage. He invented marriage. He's the one who knows about it. Paul wasn't chauvinistic. The Bible's not out of date. So God knows if everybody's in charge, no one's in charge. You know, I look at some couples, it, it drives me crazy. You know, there they are, they're bent over, and they're asking Johnny, Johnny, wh- what restaurant do you want to go to? Johnny, what do you want to order in the menu? Johnny, what church should we go to? Johnny, you know, what should we do today? Johnny's four years old. He's not capable of those decisions. He's not in charge. So, here's the roles. Verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands in the Lord. So ladies, you knew we were getting to the S word today, right? Pulled out of context, women's lib groups say, oh, the Bible's chauvinistic, this is ridiculous, men, you know, why does a wife have to submit? Well, all you have to do is back up one verse to verse 21, and it says, we're all submitting to one another in God. In the church, submission is the name of the game. We submit to one another, psalms, spiritual psalms. Submission is how we thrive in the church. You know, I'm submitted to elders. I'm submitted to a pastor. In the home, people are, I mean, submission, you know, in a school, there's a principle. Now, this idea of submission, I think, is a beautiful thing, and I think most women like it. Here's why I think most women like it, because God tells the husband his role is far more demanding. He's the head of the wife. He's the head of the family. And God gave men 30% more body mass, and... He gave them big shoulders, and he's got to nourish and cherish the wife. He's got to raise the children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Provision is on his lap. Does that mean he's smarter than the woman? No. Does that mean he has more value? No. Is he a better multitasker? No. Is he better at fixing the plumbing? Maybe, maybe not, right? What it's saying is God has made him accountable. He has to submit to Christ. The wife submits to her husband. Submission can be a beautiful thing. Uh, God said that Adam needed a helper. And again, out of context, that looks like, oh, wow, God created man, and then he creates woman as like a junior assistant, secretary kind of thing. So you read what David said. David said, the Lord is my helper, I shall not want. And if the Lord can be David's helper, I'm sure women can help men. And again, in the context of who we are in Christ and when we know we have value, this works beautifully. You know, I've listened to my wife counsel women all the time. And sometimes she'll say to women, she'll say, well, what does your husband like to do? Well, he really likes hockey. She's like, well, why don't you go to a hockey game with him then? And she's always telling women, let your husband make decisions. If you're buying a car, let him make a decision. Give your input, let him make a decision. And the wife will say, yeah, but he always makes the wrong decision. Well, then let him make the wrong decision, but let him lead and be the man God wants him to be. That's the respect he's due. That's the way God wired him. Verse 28, he has to love his wife as his own body. Wives, if guys did that, you would all be princesses. Guys love their bodies. They go to the gym. They buy cologne. Look at verse 33. They're they're to love their wives as they love themselves. Now, you ladies know guys love themselves, right? 
I mean, studies show they're thinking about sex every four seconds. They're thinking about Harley Davidson's fantasy football. They're always thinking about themselves. If they turn that around to their wives, can you imagine what a spirit-filled home would look like? And again, they have a tall order, the raising up of the children. Now, the preponderance of Scripture is what you need to look at. 1 Peter 3, 7 says, Husbands dwell with them with understanding, giving uh, honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel. It doesn't mean she's weaker. It's as to, as though she were weaker. Um, as being heirs together in the grace of life. We are heirs together. Adam and Eve stood side by side. First Peter says, there's, you know, we're side by side. Galatians says there's no male or female. It's not a matter of value, it's a matter of function. Ravi Zacharias said, love is as much of a question of the will as it is emotion, and if you will to love somebody, you can. That's why arranged marriages are very successful. And then finally, the function of children is to obey. Isn't that easy? Just obey. Um, children have it made, right? They don't have to worry about the mortgage, they don't have to worry about the electric bill, the, the stress-free life. Just obey. And by the way, your kids don't need to know why you're doing everything. They just need to obey. Now, you don't exasperate them, it says. You don't tell them, I, I'm dad, you do what I say. I, I had somebody write me and they said, Pastor Bob, we want to take you to Starbucks and pay because you had three daughters and, you know, I see them at church and, you know, I see what you've done and I have three daughters and I want to know what you did. And I couldn't even tell them what I did. Again, it looks different for everybody. So I texted all my daughters and said, look, I have this meeting. Tell me what I did. Did I exasperate my children? Absolutely. Did I always... Nourish and cherish my wife? No. Did she always submit to me? No. This is where grace comes in. We're all going to fall down. We're all going to make mistakes. And what I tell young couples is, look, communication, trials are inevitable. You know, differences in marriage are inevitable, but instead of using it to bring you to isolation, use communication to bring you together. I tell people all the time, conflict in a home is inevitable. You put any group of people together for long enough, you're going to have conflict. Resentment is optional. Bitterness is optional. The final thing we know about the home, God designed it to be permanent. Remember when I said in a marriage everybody wins? In a divorce, everybody loses. You might say, well, Pastor Bob, that's easy for you to say because you're a pastor and you live at 30,000 feet and you look at the scriptures. No, I say that as a person whose mom and dad are both married and divorced three times. Everybody loses in divorce. That's why Jesus said, what God put together, let no man pull asunder. Now, if you're divorced, does that mean that's the unpardonable sin? No, again, God's grace is there You can begin again, you can begin fresh. Does that mean there's still not problems with siblings and spouses? No, those things don't go away. We reap what we sow. But God gives us a brand new start. So wherever you are this morning, you know, my challenge is, is your home spirit-filled? And if it's not, what are the corrections? Mary Mary Pfeiffer is a PhD. She wrote a book called The Shelter of Each Other. She writes all the horrific status statistics of marriage that I'll spare you about in families, and she writes about 
some of these horrible conflicts. Here's a woman with a PhD who's an author and gives you these horrific case studies. And at the end, you know what her psychotherapy is? You know what her counsel to these families is? Turn the TV off for 30 days and take your family camping. Now, we have an instruction manual. Turn the TV off for 30 days. You know what she's saying? Do something about it. If you value it, change something. And get your family together. Doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results is insanity. Let God's grace have its outworking in your family. I often pose the question to people, if you could remove one thing from society, what would it be? Sex, illicit sex, drugs, or alcohol? And I always say my answer is I wouldn't remove any of them. My desire, and I think it's God's desire, would be every child would look up and see a mom and dad. That every person would be raised in a flourishing home. And I know it's not possible in a fallen world. And the beautiful thing is children are resilient and God works amazing things. My wife lost her dad when she was 13 years old. And when those tragedies come, community comes and surrounds people. And the story of of the ages is, is how God has used other things to kind of fit in. And how many of us, you know, my aunt has been like a second mom to me and my children, and people that have had no children have have adopted children. I mean, the, the stories of God's grace go on and on and on. But you can't have a spirit-filled home without the spirit. Thomas Wilder said, I didn't marry you because you were perfect. I didn't even marry you because I loved you. I married you because you gave me a promise. And that promise made up for your faults. And the promise I gave you made up for mine. Two imperfect people got married, and it was the promise that made the marriage. And when our children were growing up, it wasn't a house that protected them, and it wasn't our love that protected them. It was our promise. James Dobson said, My friends Keith and Mary have been married for more than 50 years. Shortly after their honeymoon, Mary was stricken with polio and became a quadriplegic. The doctors informed her that she would be confined to a wheelchair for the rest of her life. It was a devastating development, but Keith never wavered in his commitment to Mary. For all these years, he's bathed and dressed her, carried her to and from her bed, taken her to the bathroom, brushed her teeth, and combed her hair. Obviously, Keith could have divorced Mary in 1957 and looked for a new and healthier wife, but he never even considered it. I admire this man not only for doing the right thing, but for continuing to love and cherish his wife. Though the problems you and I face will be less challenging than this family faced, all of us will have our difficulties. How will we respond? Some will give up on marriage for some pretty flimsy reasons. If we're going to go the distance, nothing short of an ironclad commitment will sustain us in the hard times to come. Let's review the vows spoken by millions during their marriage ceremony. For better or worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and cherish forsaking all others from this day forward till death do us part. Keith and Mary said that, and they meant it. Spirit-filled home, this side of heaven, as close as we're going to get to what redemption really looks like. And you know what's wonderful? If your home is spirit-filled, others can partake of it. My wife and I, when we were raising children, had more singles over than anybody else. Because singles need to see a functioning home. And, and it can be an evangelistic tool. It's what God desires. Father, that's our prayer this morning. Lord, that you would 
Fill our homes with your spirit.